Well, let's turn to the 46th Psalm. One Psalm over from where Wayne was this morning. Psalm 46. We'll read the entire Psalm before we delve into it. Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The innocent headwaters of the Chattooga River meander along for mile upon mile. But near the end, just before the river plunges into Lake Tallulah, the waters turn seriously violent. In the words of Psalm 46, the waters roar. If you're rafting this section, the river becomes a hairy ride. Suddenly it's full of violent sluices and keeper hydraulics. Over the years, boaters have died in these narrow, turbulent channels. But I never thought I would be one of them. Not until one particular trip. It happened at Seven Foot Falls, a rapid name for obvious reasons. Our boat got twisted in the entrance to the falls. We hit the ledge sideways. The back of the raft flipped up into the air and catapulted me over the guys in the bow. I landed in the swirling water at the bottom of the falls. In retrospect, I was only underwater for a few seconds. But it felt like an eternity to me. For that time, for a moment, the waters just kind of kept me churning right there at the bottom of the falls. Suddenly, the hydraulics sucked me under and popped me up at the bottom of the falls. I popped up about 20 yards downstream, gasping for breath, but happy to be alive. Prior to that day, I had always thought that when it came my turn to die, I would face death full of faith and courage. 
But I got to admit to you, trapped in that swirling current, I met a dangerous enemy. I was gripped by a villain called fear. What about you? Have you ever been afraid? Recently, USA Today ran an article, Fear, What Americans Are Afraid Of Today. Here's the conclusion. 54% of us fear being in a car crash. 53% fear having cancer. 50% fear the survival of Social Security, and probably for pretty good reason. 40% fear getting mugged in their own neighborhood. 36% fear getting food poisoning from tainted meat. 35% fear coming down with Alzheimer's. 33% fear being the victim of a violent crime. 25% of Americans fear natural disasters. And 20% fear a random bombing. Folks today are surrounded by all kinds of fear. Consult the media and here's what you'll hear. Food sprayed with pesticides will kill me. Be afraid. Unfiltered water from my faucet will kill me. Be afraid. Cholesterol will kill me. Be afraid. A lack of cholesterol will kill me. Be afraid. Fluorocarbons in the atmosphere will kill me. Be afraid. Overexposure to the sun will kill me. Be afraid. Cell phone transmissions will kill me. Be afraid. Radon gas seeping up from my basement will kill me in the middle of the night. Be afraid. Saccharin in my coffee will kill me. Be afraid. Processed sugar in my coffee will kill me. Be afraid. Coffee will kill me. Be afraid. People today, they live in fear. The late advice columnist Ann Landers received 10,000 letters a month, mostly from people with problems. And she said by far the number one problem people faced was fear. And I have found that even pastors struggle against this enemy called fear. Pastors fear a drop in the offerings. We fear mutiny on the worship team. We fear getting up to preach with our fly down. We fear a church split. We fear trouble from the IRS. We fear getting fired by the elders. We fear demons in the sound system. I'm hearing them right now. We fear all of the faces. Everybody struggles with some kind of fear. Well, you can be sure that the writer of Psalm 46 was tempted by fear. Bible scholars suggest that the psalm was written by King Hezekiah, king of Judah. He wrote it in the 8th century B.C. At the time, the Assyrian Empire ruled the world. Assyria's king, Sennacherib, was ambitious and ruthless and bent on world domination. His army had conquered Syria and Israel and had already had its sights set on the land of the pharaohs, Egypt. Yet in between Sennacherib's army and the riches of the Nile lay the city of Jerusalem. Understand what King Hezekiah was up against. The Assyrians were probably 200,000 troops. And these soldiers were brutal and bloodthirsty. 
The Assyrians impaled their conquered foes. They would skin them alive like fish. They'd cut off their hands and their feet and their noses and their ears. They would pluck out their eyes or yank out their tongues. They would pile up skulls outside of city's gates just to inspire terror in the neighborhood. Imagine trying to go to sleep at night knowing that the baddest of all bad guys are camped out in your front yard waiting on the light of day to attack your house and ravage your family. You can bet King Hezekiah was scared spitless. And yet the frightened king prayed. He asked God for help. And three times in Scripture, three times no less, just so we don't miss it, God documents his deliverance. In 2 Kings 19, in 2 Chronicles 32, and in Isaiah 37, we're told that in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord came against Assyria. The angelic avenger drew his sword and slew 185,000 Assyrians. By morning light, the remainder of the enemy army was in full retreat. It's then that someone, perhaps King Hezekiah, maybe the prophet Isaiah, certainly one of Jerusalem's survivors, he looked over the wall at the death and carnage and he marveled at God's miraculous deliverance. He took up pen and parchment and he wrote Psalm 46. Over the years, this psalm has comforted many a fearful Christian it's been said, Psalm 46 assures us that God can handle in His will, in His own good time and way, things which seem like disasters to us. One of the blessings of a conference like this is the opportunity to lay aside our fears for a few days. It offers us an escape, a diversion. But we've been dreading today, haven't we? Because today we've got to go home to the very thing we fear. If you're leaving this morning to face a fear, pay close attention to Psalm 46. This psalm is divided into three stanzas. In verses 1 through 3, the psalmist depicts God as a refuge. In verses 4 through 7, God is a river. And in verses 8 through 11, God is seen as ruler. Each stanza begins or ends with the word selah, a musical notation. It signaled an interlude, a bridge where the instruments would continue to play while the previous thought was contemplated and meditated. It means literally to pause and think about it. And my friend, we will dispel our fears. We will excite our faith if we push pause on all our other thoughts and think of our God as a refuge, and as a river, and as the ruler. Well, verse 1 tells us, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That Hebrew word translated trouble, it means tight spot. Ever been in a tight spot? Options were limited, time was running out. You felt pressured or squeezed by circumstances. You were under the gun. 
You were between that rock and a hard place. You were facing a no-win situation. Perhaps you're in a tight spot today. As a pastor, some days I think my whole life could be described as a tight spot. Do I wait or do I go? Do I show patience or do I bring down the hammer? I need to make a decision, but I don't really have a peace. I'm supposed to represent God, but man, folks ought to know how much they hurt me. The people are coming to me for answers, but all I've got is questions. God called me to plant a church, but my family's calling too. Do I take action or do I rely on God's intervention? For a pastor, it seems, all of life is a tight spot. Once a daddy came home to find his usually busy house unusually quiet. He walked into the den and he noticed all five kids in the floor in the center of the room. When he saw the object of their attention, he let out a shout. For in the middle of the den sat five cute, cuddly, little skunks. Of course, when the dad shouted, it scared the kids. So each of his five kids grabbed one of the skunks and ran off into a different corner of the house. This upset dad even more, so he shouted again, which further frightened the kids. So much so that the scared kids squeezed their respective skunks. And you know what happens when you squeeze a skunk? Life stinks. <laughs> well, the psalmist had the same feelings about his life. He had the same feelings that I had when I was battling those raging rapids. He was overwhelmed. He says in verses 2 and 3, Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. You know, sometimes circumstances can overwhelm us. Situations can swirl out of our control. Life can turn into a real stinker. It's been said, life is like fighting a gorilla. You don't rest when you get tired. You rest when the gorilla gets tired. And the same is true with ministry. A crisis strikes. The pressures mount. The situation starts to unravel. The disease is pronounced incurable. At times, all you can do is hang on. The waters of life, they don't always flow gently. At times, they roar with trouble. You know, when... Men tell me that they don't want to go whitewater rafting because they can't swim. I tell them and it doesn't really matter anyway. Because nobody swims in a raging rapid. You fall out of the boat in a rapid and all you can do is reach for a rope. You're not swimming. Tumble into roaring waters and you're in an out of control situation. This is how a flood victim feels. Water starts seeping in under the door. Quickly, you throw the towels down across the threshold, but it's useless. You can't keep out the relentless intruder. 
Slowly you start to watch the waters rising. They cover your carpets. They overtake your furniture. It's a hopeless, helpless situation. I have a friend of mine who didn't know that his downstairs toilet was the lowest toilet in the neighborhood. How could he know? Until the sewer system backed up. And one day, his toilet just kept pouring and pouring and dumping sewage out into his house. And there was nothing he could do about it. That's when life really stinks. This is also the helpless situation you sense in an earthquake. Or as the psalmist puts it, the mountains shake with its swelling. There's nothing you can do when the ground starts to shake. You're at the earth's mercy. There are times in life when we've all felt like a whitewater swimmer or a flood victim. Or or the earth is shaking all around us. Life is out of control. You know, the psalmist gives us another illustration of an out-of-control circumstance. He says, even though the earth be removed. Here's an alternative translation. Earth can mean land. Be removed is sometimes rendered to change hands. Thus, some scholars interpret the phrase, when the land changes hands. Imagine an angry army, armed to the teeth, storming into your town, controlling your streets. They now dictate who can come and go. There's nothing you can do about it. You're a prisoner in your own city. This was the scene facing Jerusalem. Of course, we could add to the psalmist's list of -of out-of-control circumstances, couldn't we? When the economy tanks, when church members are out of work, when gossip is spreading about me, when my teenager rebels. Boy, I don't like to compare roaring waters and earthquakes and enemy invasions to parenting teenagers, but... There are some definite similarities. Man, when your kids are teens, so much is now out of their parents' control. You lie in bed at night while the kids are out. Your mind starts to race. Where are they? What are they doing? Are they into any trouble? And you are powerless to help. At that moment, there's not a thing in the world that you can do. When my life or the people that I love are out from under my control That's when I'm prone to fear. And fear can gain a stranglehold over a life or over a ministry. It saps us of our energy. It paralyzes our initiative. It stymies our vision. It robs our joy. Where do we run when the waters roar? Well, Psalm 46 provides us the answer. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. No matter how deep the waters get, God's feet still touch bottom. Even in raging whitewater, His legs are strong enough to stand in the current and anchor our lives. No matter how severe the storm kicks up, God can shelter me through it if I hold His hand, if I lean on Him. He is the rock that is higher than I, God is my refuge. My daughter, she used to be a cheerleader when she was in high school. The best there ever was, as a matter of fact. 
And of all the cheers that she'd do around the house, I still remember one. Rain can't rock this house. Thunder can't rock this house. Lightning can't rock this house. And you can't rock this house. How you like that? Natalie now coaches cheerleading at Northside Columbus High School. And recently I went down to visit her and I went to cheerleading practice and she made me do that cheer in front of all the girls. <laughs> but this is what the psalmist is talking about. This is what he's saying about God in verses 2 and 3. He's saying, it doesn't matter how out of control his life gets. Bring on the rain. Bring on the thunder and the lightning. It doesn't matter. God is his rock. The church or the life or the family you're building will survive the storm when God is your refuge. God is what we need where and when we need Him. But always remember, God is our refuge in the storm, not from the storm. Notice again verses 2 and 3. It's not if the earth is removed or if the waters roar. It's though the earth is removed, though the waters roar, though the mountains shake. You see, there are two kinds of faith. There's though faith and there's if faith. If faith says, God, I'll trust you if you bless me. I'll live for you if you solve my problems. God, I'll obey you if you make my life easy. But that's not real faith. And that's the kind of faith that gets washed away in the storm. Real faith is though faith. God, I'll love you though the earth is removed. I'll serve you though my life is turned topsy-turvy. I'll trust you, Lord, though I feel forsaken. The psalmist knows that being God's child doesn't insulate us from stress, but it does make us eligible for God's help and comfort in the midst of that stress. Christianity is not immunity from trouble. It's community with God. Make Jesus your refuge, and he comes on board with all of his resources. You know, I've learned that when waters roar, you really have a choice. You can focus inside or outside. Check out verse 4. He says, There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. You see, there was danger outside the city. There was this vast and vicious invader. But the psalmist fixes his attention on who abides inside the city. He says, God is in the midst of her. I I love what one author says about Jesus. We see him in the midst of the upper room after his resurrection. In the midst of the lampstands, walking among the churches in Revelation. He is always in the midst. He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Our Lord Jesus doesn't take us out of the mire of this life. No, he rolls up his shirt sleeves and he jumps into the mess with us. Jesus is in the midst of whatever you're in the middle of. This was his approach in saving the world. God became a man. He got as much in the midst as possible. 
He tackled the issues that we face daily. Remember the name the angel gave to Joseph for Jesus. Mary's baby would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or as the psalmist might say, God in our midst. You will always find Jesus in the thick of things. Note the analogy in verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. Notice in verse 3 now, he's just talked about the roaring waters. Yet in contrast to the rising flood that threatens the city, there is a stream of encouragement that flows into the city to refresh its inhabitants. And there was actually a historical parallel to this imagery. Before the reign of Hezekiah, Jerusalem's water supply was outside the city walls. The Gihon Spring bubbled up in the Kishon Valley just east of Jerusalem. The anticipation of this invasion caused the king to build a tunnel. 1,777 feet long, cut through solid rock. The tunnel channeled the water from the spring into the city. Even today, you can go to Jerusalem and you can walk up Hezekiah's tunnel. The river still flows. And the psalmist compares this river reservoir to God. In the midst of the storm that's brewing on the outside, inside there is a stream of strength and vitality that flows under the walls of my life. God is that river. An artesian spring bubbles up within the depths of my heart. And here's the key for a pastor who frequently finds himself in tight spots. Underneath all of the activity and all of the ministry, there has to be a spring. There has to be a place inside your heart that you can retreat to, where you can go to drink and get refreshed. I have a friend of mine, his name is Kenny. He's an expert fisherman. In fact, he has trophies of huge bass that he's plucked out of the lakes over at Stone Mountain Park. Now, I marvel at these trophies because I could fish Stone Mountain Park from now until eternity, and I can't even get a nibble. I've always figured the fish over there were state employees, always on vacation. (laughs) But let me tell you Kenny's secret. He's got maps of the lake bottoms. You see, years ago, a river flowed around the mountain. And today's lakes were made by flooding out all of those riverbeds. But Kenny still knows where those subsurface rivers ran. And the underwater banks that draw those big bass. And he sends his lures to school, man, right among those banks. He catches his limit every time. He is a smart guy. And this is what the psalmist does when the floods come and the troubles overwhelm him. He recalls the river that runs under the surface of his life. The heart of a shepherd isn't a lonely cave. The Holy Spirit lives within him. He lives within us to to bring a flow of God's joy and love and peace and strength. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, author Philip Yancey, he offers us a suggestion. 
He says that we should view God's intervention in our lives not so much as coming down from heaven, but as, as rising up from below. He writes, puts it this way. He says, we tend to view God's interactions like light rays or hailstones or lightning bolts falling to the ground. Perhaps we would do better to picture God's interaction as an underground aquifer, a river that rises to the surface in springs and fountainheads. I agree. You see, the last half of Psalm 46 describes how God comes down to defend Jerusalem from these marauding enemies and end the threat. But prior to their deliverance from trouble, God rises up in the midst of their trouble as a river flowing under the walls. God is a river of refreshment for us. Jesus promised, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Once there was a man wandering through the desert in search of water. The guy was dying of thirst when he encountered a merchant who was selling neckties. <laughs> what does he need with a necktie? He pushes on, crawling through the hot sands, dehydrated, desperate. He tops his hill and he looks down and he sees a restaurant. He musters all his remaining energy and he races down the hill. But when he reaches the door, there's this huge sign that says, Neckties required. <laughs> when circumstances are good and you're riding high and the ministry is growing, you might not see the need to cultivate these inner, deeper resources. But when the waters roar, man, when you're under the gun, when you're about to be overwhelmed, that's when you know you need a spiritual river to slake your thirst and to provide you a supernatural surge. Well, the rest of Psalm 46 depicts God's outward deliverance of Jerusalem. Verse 5, God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Like Indians in the old westerns, ancient armies never attacked at night. It was always at first light, always at the break of day. But God was ready. The nations raged, but God uttered his voice. The earth melted. Before the Assyrian troops could launch their attack against God's people, just at the break of day, the angel of the Lord went on his offensive. You know, it's another example of God appearing just in the nick of time. How often has this happened in our lives? God stretches our faith. He teaches us patience. And then when we think it's too late, boom, he shows up and comes through. The psalmist invites us in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. You know, who wins the outside war was never in question. God always prevails in circumstances. He breaks the bow. The only question was who was going to prevail on the inside, fear or faith? This is why verse 10 is so vital. Underline it if you like. Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When Jerusalem was attacked, there was never a question in heaven as to what God would do. God is God. He loves and protects his people. What made it an issue in the mind of King Hezekiah and the Jews was fear. This is why God tells them, be still and know that I am God. Understand this. Fear grows in the noises and in the conflicting voices. Listen to the noises and you are destined for confusion. Skeptical people in a sensationalistic media in a doubting society, they will only give sanction to your fears. In the noise, fear takes root. It is only when I come to the quiet and I let God speak to me, only then does faith begin to grow. I like the quote, the more we train ourselves to spend time with God and alone, the more we discover that God is with us at all times and in all places. The Greek philosopher Sophocles said, to him who is in fear, everything rustles. In other words, God gets lost, faith gets replaced, fear takes over when we get caught up in the hustle and bustle and rustle of life, even ministry. God is always in control in good times and in bad times, but the noises of this world drown out that realization. And we are reminded only when we are alone. Here's the irony. As I've mentioned earlier, fear becomes a threat when my life spins out of control. That's when I'm prone to fear the storms that come and the waters that roar. I can no longer navigate. I've lost control. But verse 10 implies that faith also grows when I lose control. You see, here's the truth. Losing control is inevitable. The reality is, is that none of us are in control of our lives. At some point, we all face forces greater than ourselves. Here's the difference between faith and fear. Fear grows when control slips from hands that desperately want to maintain it. Whereas faith grows when those same hands trying to hold on to control voluntarily give it up to God. Fear and faith are nurtured by how we respond to these out-of-control situations. When life goes haywire, faith knows that God is ruler over every situation. Verse 6 He utters his voice, the earth melts. Engineers that design those long, tall suspension bridges realize that these structures, they conjure up fear in many drivers. And some state DOTs offer a driving service to get bridgeophobic drivers safely to the other side. For example, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge in Maryland. It's four miles long and stands 200 feet over the bay. And every year, state workers take the wheel of a thousand cars and drive scared motorists across the span to the other side. And this is the key for us getting over our fears. We need a driver. We need to voluntarily take our hands off the steering wheel of life and let Jesus drive. Faith relaxes. Faith chills out. 
Faith stops fretting and plotting and manipulating. Just be still and know that God is God. Before Moses parted the Red Sea, he told the Hebrews, be still. Before Ruth was adopted into God's family, Boaz told her, sit still. Before God defeated the nations that rose against Jehoshaphat, he told the people of Judah, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I hope you get it. Before God acts, he always requires his people to be still. Well, Psalm 46 closes in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now recall the name of the angel. Recall the name that the angel gave to Joseph. That his married son would be called when he was born. He gave the name Jesus to Joseph. But then he also gave that name Emmanuel. Remember that name? And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Now, here in verse 11, the psalmist ends his praise. Notice how he does. He shouts out, the Lord of hosts is with us. He, lo he looks over the city walls and he utters a battle cry. He says, the Lord of hosts, Emmanuel. He credits Jesus with the victory. He looks over the walls and he sees the defeated Assyrian troops their corpses littered across the valley. And he credits Emmanuel. Did you know that the baby born in Bethlehem had already been to battle? I believe that Jesus was the angel, the messenger of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, delivered Judah from the Assyrians. And here's my big point. If the Assyrian army is no match for Jesus... Neither are the troubles that plague you and your family and your church. Selah. Pause and think about that. Is God your refuge? Have you turned control of your life, ministry, and family over to Jesus? Do you believe He rules over all situations? And if you're in a tight spot today, if, tr if troubled waters roar around you, remember that God is with you in the midst of those struggles. There is a river. Look inside today, my friend. Drink deeply. A river of living water flows under the surface of your life. When the waters roar, be still. For God is a refuge, a river, and the ruler. In Jesus' name, amen.